There we are. Uh, to this week, we are actually beginning the look at the report card. You know, we've had some preliminary stuff, uh, getting us ready for it. What was, John, what was Jesus telling John in chapter 1? Today, we are we're hitting the report card, and, and we're starting off, and, and for most of the churches, Jesus started off with the good grade. And today is a good grade. Uh, church at Ephesus is our first church. And they got an A plus in, in what we're talking about today. Now, now next week is the bad grade. Uh, but they, he always started out, if there was a good grade to give, with the good one. And we're looking at the church of Ephesus in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 is where we're going to be. And, and the title, for lack of a better one, is Appropriate Tolerance. Now when we read through this, you're going to see the word tolerate a couple of times and in relation to a couple of different things and that's why we're looking at appropriate tolerance they tolerate the correct things and they don't tolerate the incorrect things but let's uh, talk about tolerance first because it, it, it's gotten a, a bad it's become a bad word unfortunately in our culture or at least a, a, mis a misused word uh, there's plenty of tolerance today that is inappropriate we are told that we are supposed to tolerate everything and anything. It doesn't matter what it is. If you, if you don't tolerate it, well, then you're labeled a bigot or a hate group or something like that. So regardless of what it is, regardless of how clearly Scripture speaks on it, we are supposed to just tolerate it. That is not what we're talking about today. And, and, and well, actually, it, it kind of is. Um, but we need to understand that, that tolerance does not mean acceptance all the time. And we're going to go through some uh, parameters, some things to remember as we go through this. Okay? Tolerance does not mean acceptance. There are things we have to tolerate. Uh, for exa example, missionaries, that's us, we have to tolerate, or the word here in the scripture is put up with, we have to put up with uh, the sin of the lost in order to reach them. And I don't mean put up with as in, you know, grudgingly like we, we put up with uh, an in-law, you know. <laughs> I love my in-laws, by the way. Because um, uh, my mother-in-law usually watches the sermons online, so I, you know. Uh, but, you know, or a family member that we don't care for, or people, you know, we put up with. When we're going to the lost, we have to understand that the lost act like they're lost. So when we're a missionary to that group, we don't go into that group and say, okay, now here's the deal. First off, you need to change everything about yourself. You need to clean up. You need to stop doing this and this and this and all these other things. And we give them the list and then tell them, now when you get that done, I'll tell you about Jesus. That is not the way it works. That is not the way it ever has worked, nor will it ever work that way. Jesus went into the homes of the sinners to tell them about the gospel. He told the woman caught in adultery, nobody else is here to accuse you? Go and sin no more. You don't hear the condemnation. You hear from him a tolerance in a good way, an understanding that they are lost, they are sinners, and they're not going to change until Jesus changes the heart. So that's the first thing we need to understand. We have to put up with we have to tolerate the lost. That means in our church. That means whoever comes through these doors, we welcome, we love, and we share the gospel. 
It does not matter their background. It does not matter their history. It doesn't matter their present. What we're worried about is their future and how we can share the gospel with them so that their life is changed. That's, remember, we are not uh, a country club for the whole. We're a hospital for the sick every time these doors are open. So that's what we need to remember, number one. Uh, number two, we need to tolerate or put up with the struggles of Christians that are going through their own sanctification. See, you know, I'm not perfect. Troy? Amen, right? Okay. Uh, uh, I am not perfect. You're not perfect. We are in a process. We are being sanctified. We were justified at the cross. When we accepted Christ, we were justified. That was a one-time forever event. But throughout our lives, we are going through a process of sanctification. That means that God is trying to make us as much like His Son as possible. And some days we go, yeah, I got it. And some days, man, I blew it. That's sanctification. And we will see that in every person here. We'll see areas in, in, in each life in this room where we go, boy, that person sure ain't sanctified much in that area. Well, that's, that's God working on them. That's their opportunity to grow because they could look at you and say the same thing. Boy, there are some places where you ain't too sanctified yourself. So we need to understand that in our tolerance, in our toleration, or as we find out in a few minutes where we don't tolerate evil, in our lack of tolerance of evil, we have to remember that people are being sanctified. If they were saved yesterday, they're not going to act like they were saved 40 years ago. And frankly, I've known people that I would prefer the actions of the saved yesterday than I would the actions of the saved 40 years ago. And we know people like that. They say they got saved 40 years ago, but there's no evidence. But you talk to somebody who's just fresh and new, and their lives are different. So we need to understand that going in. Uh, finally, we must remember that we have a plank. What do I mean by that? Some of you immediately go, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. Some of you don't. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to tell you what that means in a few minutes. We'll get to it, I promise. Now, this message is probably going to be a little different than, than I've done, and I don't know if all the messages in this series are going to be this way or not, but this is the most Scripture-heavy message that I've put together since I've been here. Um, I mean, always when, when uh, I've brought a message, uh, there's always the focus Scripture, then we're definitely going to go through that. And there are always a few verses that we bring in to look at. But today, I mean, it is ed up with Scripture. So don't try to flip the pages. They're going to all be on the screen. If you want to take notes and write down so you can go back and look at them later, that's fine. But we're going to go through a lot of other Scriptures that, that talk about, that, that feed our understanding of why the church at Ephesus got an A+. Plus for appropriate tolerance. So let's look at the passage first of all. Revelation 2, 1 through 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, or who have called themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name, and have not grown weary. 
Well, let's look at verse 1 for a second and get some kind of preliminary stuff out of the way. Some things that will, uh, some things that we're going to see every time we look at a church's report card. For example, he writes to an angel. Angel, the word angel actually means messenger. So anytime in the Old Testament, anytime in the New Testament, where it, you see the word angel, the, the idea is a messenger. Now, both Old Testament and New Testament give us some description of angels. Uh, Revelation being one of the, probably the clearest descriptions, that and maybe Ezekiel, uh, gives us a, a description of what they look like, but they're always a little different, and they always have, you know, some of them have two wings, some of them have six wings, and you know, all this stuff going on. What we need to understand in this uh, particular passage is that angel could be they're talking to the pastor of those churches. The letter is to the messenger, the one who gives God's message to the church. That's possible. Uh, two reasons why um, it, it, it shouldn't, we, we shouldn't put too much stock in that. One, the New Testament almost never refers to a human using this word. If it's some sort of messenger, they use a different word. Maybe they use apostle, which means envoy or, or messenger. Or may they use some other word. It, it almost never happens that the, a person is called an angel. Secondly, we don't want to remove the, the, the spiritual realm from this passage. There are angels. There are demons. There is a spiritual war taking place right now. In here, out there, around the world, it, it is going on. Daniel makes that clear. Ezekiel makes that clear. Revelation shows it. Um, Jesus talked about it. The principalities and the powers of the air, that's not us. Those are spiritual forces warring right now. So we don't want to take that out of it. So it's very likely that what John is talking about here is a specific angel assigned to the church. Now, why are we writing the letter to that angel? Well, if we go on and we read the rest of Revelation, then we see the, uh, the spiritual uh, realm that is represented in Revelation. So it makes sense to continue, or, 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 or we understand why he began that theme, I should say, in these letters. Because it's going on, the heavenly court is uh, completely wrapped up in, in the occurrences and what's happening in Revelation. It's also because the angel represents authority at that church. He represents um, the delivery of messages to that church. It's not that the, the angel is somehow sinning and not doing what it's, he's supposed to. So the letters go into him, now you tell the churches. It's, it's very much a, a, uh, a literary use here. But we can't just say, oh, well, John's just flowering up the language because we understand that there is a very real spiritual war that goes on inside every church every time people meet. So we need to understand that as, the, as, the, uh, as we read on. And every time he writes to the angel of every church. Now, he's writing in this case to the angel in Ephesus. Ephesus is a major port at this time, at this time, in Asia Minor. Now, it's not anymore. And remember, we've talked about, and I've mentioned before, how the lampstand was removed from these churches. And the different scholars have said different things. Maybe, maybe the lampstand means they've lost their, their purpose as a church. They, they lost the spirit. The, the, the spirit left because the spirit left the people. There was no, you know, any number of reasons we could go into why a church ceases to exist. 
I lean heavily toward that side, that God removed his hand from the church because the church no longer represented the God that they claimed. But there's also this sense that the entire area suffered when the church no longer existed. The culture of the city of Ephesus suffered when that church wasn't there. And I use as an, uh, Ephesus as an example, and we'll see some other examples later on with the other six churches. Ephesus was a port, but there was a river that ran into that port. Uh, that river had a really uh, uh, w w produced a lot of silt, and it would silt up that port. But it was constructed in such a way that for a long time, the silt would kind of flow out, and it wouldn't be a big deal. Okay? Over the years, there was one particular emperor who widened the entrance to the port. And when he did that, he messed up the whole flow. And eventually, that port completely filled up with silt until the point where it was no longer a port at all. And now, even Ephesus, as, or actually Ephesus doesn't exist, uh, the Ephesus that John was talking about had to move. Because, I mean, it, it, they could no longer use where they were. They moved three or four miles away. The city was something completely different after a few years, and then it no longer existed. So, that's the Ephesus we're talking about here. Ephesus was a hotbed of emperor worship as well as pagan worship. There are all kinds of temples there. Uh, it, was, it was one of the favored cities of Rome. It was uh, something like the capital. A lot of government commerce went on there, and that's why... Uh, they, they had these temples to the emperor there. So when John's writing, so when John's talking about how they are going through persecution, the people at Ephesus understand that. They live in a culture that is completely against the God and that they serve and the Savior that he sent. They live in a culture that wants nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible. Does that sound familiar? It should. And so, Ephesus knows. Ephesus understands. And then later on in that verse, uh, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, the one, it says, well, the one is Jesus. Know that every time we get there, that it is Jesus speaking. It is Jesus telling John to write this. And he says, he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Those are the angels. That's Jesus' control over them, and that uh, he walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus' presence in the churches. So at this time, when John's writing to them, these are great, thriving churches. Three things we see here. John tells them in verse 2, you tolerate effort, A+. plus. You don't tolerate evil, A+. plus. And you tolerate persecution. These are the appropriate types of tolerance. What do we mean by tolerates effort? Well, look at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. All three of these words mean a little different thing. Works, these are deeds or actions. This is the stuff that they do. This is the, these are the activities they take part in. My question for us, for First Baptist Church, because remember, we're looking at Ephesus's, Ephesus's, it's a good word, 
Ephesus's report card to see what kind of grade we would get. And, and remember, this was a circular letter. This was a letter, it went to Ephesus first, and Ephesus saw everything that happened to Smyrna and Laodicea. And then it went on to the next town, and they read about Ephesus. This was not a private thing. This was not John writing a little note to the church. Hey, y'all, this is what you need to do. Everybody in Asia Minor was going to know what was going on at Ephesus and know what was, going to go, what was going on in Philadelphia and Laodicea and so on and so forth. So this was out in the open, bold. This is where you are. So I ask you, First Baptist Church, what are you, you doing for Jesus? What are your works? What are your deeds? What are your actions? See, Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His creation, created in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus for good works. But not just any good works. Not just whatever we want to do. Not just what feels good or looks good or sounds good. But works which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. First Baptist Church, what is our grade on doing the good work for Jesus Christ? That's the question that's being asked through Ephesus, the, the report card sent to Ephesus. Second thing Jesus says is, I know your labor. Labor is toil. Now that word can also mean trouble or difficulty. So what is your, I know your toil, I know, I know your labor, I know, I know the sweat you have put into this. I know the, uh, the calluses on your hand, I know the things you're doing and how hard those things are. First Baptist Church, what are you doing for Jesus that's hard? Because we'll say, oh, I do lots of stuff for Jesus, I come to church, uh, I, I give a little, okay, are those hard? What are you doing? Jesus says, I know your toil. Can Jesus look at First Baptist Church and say, I know your toil. I know that you labor for me. I know you, 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 don't, just, you don't just do things, but you do things that are hard for me. I know that. The Bible tells us, 1 Thessalonians 2.9, For you remember our labor, Paul says, our hardship, brothers, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you, we preached God's gospel to you. They labored for the gospel. They labored. They toiled that someone might know Jesus Christ. First Baptist Church, what are we doing for Jesus that's hard? Not the easy stuff. What are we doing that's hard? Jesus goes on to say, I know your endurance. I know your endurance. This is patience. This is fortitude. I know that you have put up with a lot of stuff. I know you have been hurt because of the hard works that you're doing. First Baptist Church, what are we doing for Jesus that's hard that we want to quit? Because see, there are things that we do that are easy. There are things that we do that are hard. They're labor intensive. They require us to toil. What are those things that we do that are hard, that are labor intensive, that we feel like we just cannot do anymore? 
what are we having to endure? 2 Timothy 2.10 says, This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they may also... That they may, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. So what are you doing that you're having to endure? See, rarely do our easy works bring about persecution. You know, we, chances are, don't get persecuted for doing the easy things. You know, the easy things come into church, and they're not bad things. Please don't hear me wrong. They're good things, but they're not the things that require a whole lot of effort on our part. Come to church. Give some money. Do we get persecuted for those things? Generally not. What about those things, those works that require labor, that require toil, that require us to, to spend time in study, Maybe, maybe the labor is true physical labor. Maybe you're one of the ones that comes up here and paints on work days and that kind of thing. That requires labor. That requires toil. Good things, but those aren't things that you will be persecuted for. Ha ha, look at you going up there to that church to paint. Nobody says that. But what about those things, those works, those deeds where you work and you labor and you toil and you have to endure the persecution. This is the work of the gospel. This is the work of telling people who have never heard about Jesus, don't want to hear about Jesus, telling them anyway. You need Jesus. Telling them in love, as we're going to get to in a minute. But do you tolerate, do you endure persecution because of the work you do for Christ? The second thing he says, Jesus tells them, their appropriate tolerance, is that they do not tolerate evil. Again, he goes on to say that in verse 2, uh, the second part there. And you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. Do not tolerate evil, First Baptist Church, specifically in your leadership. Specifically among deacons, among Sunday school teachers, among those that either are or fancy themselves leaders in the church. We cannot tolerate evil among our leadership. 1 John 4.1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We need to test everything. When I get up here and preach and you hear something that hits you a little bit squirrely, check it out. Don't take my word for it. Go to the Bible. Now, what did he mean? Is he telling me the Bible says that and interpreting it the right way? Is this true to God's word, or is he just making something up to make me feel bad or get me to do something? Go to God's word. Test every spirit. Because if I'm up here, I'm either... If I'm up here and I say something wrong, I'm either doing one of two things. I'm mistaken and I need to study better. Or I'm trying to manipulate you and lie to you, in which case I'm evil. You need to know which of those two things I am. If I'm mistaken, I need correction. If I'm evil, I need to be fired. 
So you need to test the spirits. Do not tolerate evil, specifically among leadership. Do not tolerate evil in others. Now, understand this. Remember, we are talking about the church here. John is writing to the church. He's not writing to the lost. So what I said earlier about tolerating the sins of others in order to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, we need to do that. We need to understand that when we go to a lost world, they're going to do and say and act in ways that we're not going to like, and we're going to be able to go to the verse and say, you should not be doing that. But they have no clue about that. We've got to make them understand Jesus. And yes, there's a point where we have to make them understand sin. But I'm, I'm confident that that they understand sin. They know at least some things are wrong. We need to go in there with love. So remember, remember that we're talking about the church, not the lost. But we cannot tolerate evil in others. 1 Samuel 3.13 says, I told him that I'm going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are defiling the sanctuary, and he has not stopped them. If you're not familiar with this story, I'm not going to go into great detail with it, but this is Eli. Eli was the high priest. Samuel was a baby who, was, who learned under Eli, became Samuel the prophet, uh, Samuel the high priest. Uh, he even acted as a king in many respects. Samuel learned under Eli. Eli himself was probably an okay guy, except that he had absolutely no control over his sons. And if you go back and you read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3, you can read some of the things that the, his sons were doing. But he did not control his sons. He tolerated evil in his family and in his church. Pure evil. We're not talking about tradition that we didn't like or do like that went away. We're talking about evil things Eli tolerated and he has, uh, his family will be judged forever, God says, because the iniquity he knows about and he has not stopped them. We are not to tolerate evil in our midst. We are not to tolerate and allow things to go on that we know God clearly speaks against. Why? Well, because they need the truth. They need to hear the truth of what is wrong. Christians, when they come in, and, and let, me, let me back up one more time, brand new Christians who have just left a life of, of complete indifference to Jesus Christ and the things of God, won't immediately upon salvation understand everything they are and aren't supposed to do. They're not going to understand all the, the rules that they're supposed to follow. They just know, you know what? Man, I did all these things, and of course they don't feel as good now as they used to, and, and I don't want to do them, but, but maybe they don't know that this is a sin. Maybe they don't know this other thing is a sin. They need the truth. Absolutely. But they need it in love. And they need the truth not so we look better. They need to be told the truth so that they will repent. Luke 17, 3, Be on your guard if a brother sins. Rebuke him 
And if he repents, forgive him. When you don't tolerate evil, what's your goal? Is your goal, like the Pharisees, to talk about how good you are? Or is your goal to see someone grow in their Christian walk? I heard this week, we look at the, uh, we, we read about the Pharisee who was praying in the temple and said, thank you that I'm not like this sinner, this tax collector. You know the story, the tax collector was sitting there beating his chest, forgive me God, a sinner. Pharisee says, thank you that I'm not like this, this sinner. We read that story and we go, thank you, God, that I am not like that Pharisee. <laughs> yeah, you are. You hear what you just said? Thank you, I'm not like the sinner. The Pharisee was bad. Thank you, God, I'm not like the Pharisee. Rather than saying, thank you, God, I'm like the sinner. That needs forgiveness every day. We need the truth. But y'all, I've said it once, I'll say it again. It must be done lovingly. Ephesians 4.15 but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Now, let's, let's be real honest. Ain't nobody in here, me included, that wants to hear I'm doing something wrong. And it doesn't matter how lovingly you speak it to me, I am going to get ticked off. It's going to happen. You are too. But if spoken in love, if truly spoken in love, I'll get over it. And I'll begin to understand, dang, they're right. And I won't be happy with it. I sure won't be happy with me. I'm kind of aggravated with God, too, that he made that rule. Said I couldn't do it or whatever it is. But my relationship with the person who tells me will be stronger in the end. It won't be fun. It won't be comfortable. But because of the love the relationship will grow instead of cease to exist. But if we come to somebody, Lord, I want to thank you that I am not like so-and-so, and so-and-so, -and -so, here's how I'm not like you, and here's how you need to be. You, ain't, you are not going to make a friend that way, and you are not going to gain a brother either. You are not going to see someone grow in their relationship. You're not going to see somebody sanctified. You're going to see somebody ticked off who may leave the church and never come back. And then we say, well, that's their choice. No, that was your responsibility because you did not go to them in love. It falls back on you. Sure, they have the free will choice to make, but you did not obey either. So we need to be a church that does not tolerate evil, in others, but we do our correction lovingly. But we also need to not tolerate evil in our own lives. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log or plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It is real clear, Jesus is telling us, if you're taking it upon yourself, which we should as the body of Christ, to not tolerate evil in others in the church, then you better be dadgum sure you are prayed up and your life is everything you can get it to be before you go to them. Now, you are not going to be perfect. You never will be. And I'm not saying that. 
But if you're meeting somebody at a bar with a drink in your hand to tell them they shouldn't be drinking, you see a problem here? If you are caught up in lust and pornography and adultery and you're telling them not to do such things, you see the problem there? Now, very often, uh, we, we see the worst sins in other people that we're struggling with ourselves. That's usually how it works. So it's kind of a tell, you know, like in poker, you have a tell. When, when you have one issue that is your big issue, people begin to wonder, bet he has that issue too. Because it just works that way. But when we go to somebody else and say, I am telling you this in love and as a brother, and it may help to say, you know, I struggle with this too. Man, what you're doing, what you're involved in, is not leading to your sanctification. You are not becoming more Christ-like. It's the wrong path. It's the wrong way. It is affecting our church. Every one of you, the life of, of every one of you, the lifestyle of every one of you affects the reputation of the church. And I'm not talking about the reputation of First Baptist. I'm talking about the reputation of Christ's church. So when we see on TV preacher in Indiana just this past week, uh, he is under FBI investigation because he was having an extramarital affair. Now, why was the FBI in on an affair? Turns out this girl was possibly a teenager and she was taken across state lines to meet him. Boom, FBI. That reflects on the rest of the church. We're sinners. We, we're going to do that. We're, hopefully not that. We're going to mess up. We're going to sin. Yeah, let me back up there. Uh, we're going to have our issues. Every time we do, it reflects negatively on the church. But, but hold on. Every time we forgive and we are repentant and we come back, I believe it reflects positively on the church. There, there are so many men, women, who felt like their sin could never allow them back into the church. We have failed, if that is how they felt. Now, we cannot, we, we cannot condone sin. We cannot tolerate evil. I'm talking about true repentance. Yes, I was. Yes, I did. But I'm not anymore, and I don't. But I cannot go to that, that, back to that church because they won't believe me. They won't forgive me. They won't accept me. We of the church, as the church have failed. If anyone feels that way. Seventy times seven we're told to forgive a brother. So if that person goes out and does it again, in two weeks they come back, I'm sorry. We forgive you. Welcome back. Now, should, there be, should they be the pastor? Uh, I doubt it. Should they be in a leadership position? No. 
But should we ever tell them you cannot come back because you have sinned too many times? Let's start counting your sins. Let's start counting my sins. We cannot tolerate evil in their life or in our own life. Philippians 4, 8, whatever, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is any praise, dwell on these things. In your own life, if we are doing this to the best of our ability, then we are ready to go to the other in love and say, this is not God's best for you. God's got something better. If you'll let go of what Satan is holding up in front of you and turn to what God has for you, you will find a life that Jesus called abundant. You're not going to find the abundant life holding to those temptations that Satan constantly throws in front of you. What sort of evil... Maybe this is a question that comes up. Maybe this is something you're thinking about. Well, what are all the bad things? I don't have time to get into all of them. But I'll point you to two different verses. That, that even, that, that these don't cover everything, okay? These are just some good verses that enumerate some stuff. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. That pretty much covers it all. I mean, there are probably some things we could throw in there that maybe aren't there, but that, that gets it. I mean, you start at what we call the bad things, like sexual immorality, adultery, uh, the, that kind of stuff, fornication. But then it gets into, he lumps it all together. And understand that in a, in a couple of words later, he says, these things, people who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's not making a distinction between adultery and envy. So envy will keep me out of heaven just like adultery. Well, understand every sin keeps you out of heaven. Any sin keeps you out of heaven. But as far as God is concerned, the sins are the sins. So yes, you say, I'm glad I'm not like the Pharisee. Um, selfish ambition. Outbursts of anger. You got a temper? Jealousy. Did you want that new boat and your friend got it instead? Dissension. You love stirring up. Are you a pot stirrer? I'm, I'm sorry if there's some of you that have told me you are, but <laughs> factions. Are you the one that makes teams in a church? You see? Those are just some of the things. Some of the things that Jesus says, this is evil in the church. One more, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Six things the Lord's hate. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Ooh, there's that one again. So, this gives you an idea. 
You want to know what sorts of evil can come into the church? These are some of them. And these are the things that we cannot tolerate. One more time. Someone will come in who's a drunken, womanizing carouser. Okay? I'm picking on guys. Somebody will come in. We welcome them. We welcome the, the fact that they are looking for something, and so far they haven't found it in the bottle and in the women. Okay? We're excited that they came through our doors. And maybe, just maybe they hear the gospel. No. They hear the gospel. Maybe they take the gospel. They understand the gospel and they're changed. And for months, maybe even years, they are faithful. And then they fall. And they're back to the, the old ways. And then they come back. Yes, come back. Now, we are going to call you to repentance. You need to stop what you're doing. No, you can't just flaunt it and say, oh, it's fine. Oh, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. But you are welcome to come and hear the word of God and allow it to penetrate your life and change you. That's the kind of church we've got to be. And then lastly, he tells them that they tolerate persecution. Verse 3, You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name. That's Jesus, my name. And have not grown weary. You know, if you don't believe that the name is the problem, if you don't believe that Jesus is the problem, talk to anybody in the whole wide world about God. And unless they are just the strictest, strictest of atheists, they've got some concept of God. Talk to a Muslim about God. Talk to a Hindu about God. Talk to a Scientologist about God. Now, I mean, they'll tell you your God, or the God is the energy that's in you, or whatever they say, but they'll talk to you about God. They'll have a conversation about God. Sure, God is wonderful, great, whatever. Mention Jesus. The name is the problem. Because then we just got exclusive. Then we just said, no, but your God isn't the true God. Jesus is the true God. Then we see problem. See, uh, if you do not tolerate evil, you will be persecuted. If you do not stand for what is right, I'm sorry, if you do stand for what is right, if you say there is a right and a wrong, you will be persecuted. This past week, you, uh, many of you may have kept up with the whole Chick-fil-A thing. Uh, there, were, there are many people, many Christians, who say Christians need to be known more for what they are for than, what they are, than for what they are against. Christians need to be known more for what they're for than for what they are against. Sounds good. It really does. Uh, and, and their point is, we need to be known for loving people. We need to be known for the gospel, which is a good thing. But let's, let's look at it a little differently. If we're known for the Bible, then if we are for the Bible, then we're going to be against homosexuality. I did not say homosexuals. I said homosexuality. 
If we are for the Bible, we're going to be against adultery. If we're for the Bible, we're going to be against drunkenness. If we're for the Bible, we're going to be against a lot of things. And that's what we understand. If we have to understand, if we're for Jesus, and if we are for the Bible, then there will be things in our culture that we are against. Just because we have to be. And the culture will persecute us for that. When we stand up and say that homosexuality is wrong, we're called bigots. We're called hate groups. Focus on the family is labeled a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And by hate group, they mean a group that persecutes particular people for something they can't help. That's what they mean by hate group. Southern Poverty Law Center probably did some good things when it first started out because it was to protect minorities and to point out true hatred. But now they say that if you are against, if you label something a sin, our church would be considered a hate group now. In Canada, for preaching what I just preached, I could go to jail. Not yet in America, but in Canada for saying homosexuality is a sin, I can go to jail. And I'm not beating up on that sin in particular right now, it's just in the culture at the moment. If we are for Jesus, we will be against things, because we have to be, and the culture is going to persecute us. Rejoice in that. Romans 5, 3 through 4 says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, our persecutions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. There was a great sermon on this, this passage about two or three months ago by some little-known pastor in a small Texas town. Um, we have to understand that we will be persecuted if we're standing against the culture and standing for what God says is right. Know it's coming. 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9. We are pressured in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are per uh, persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. There is hope in our persecution. There is joy in our persecution. We, if we are going to be the church that gets an A plus on our report card, we have to be a church that tolerates the persecution that will come from standing for what is right and standing against what is wrong. In, a, in the Bible times, in Rome, the church had no, no method to stand against the culture. If the church stood up, they were killed. And many of them did and were. As of right now, we don't live in that culture. We can stand up for biblical truth right now. We can vote. We can, we can go to Chick-fil-A with no signs or no nothing, just buy something we would have bought anyway, and say, you know what? I stand on biblical values. We can do those things in our culture. There are some, if you read, that say, oh, we shouldn't have. We're, we're being, and they were going back to this, where, oh, you're just known for what you're against stuff. We were being somehow um, antagonistic by going. If that's the case, then every Sunday that I get up and preach and talk about sin, I'm being antagonistic. 
If that's the case, every time I confront someone and say, you know, is that the best life? And not a Joel Osteen best life. I mean, is this, is this the, the, the life that Jesus has for you? Is this, is this a life of, of holiness? I'm being antagonistic. Oh, no, you shouldn't do that. Yeah, I should. I should always stand for what's right. Martin Luther King said, the only thing that has to happen, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, that has to happen for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. So the only thing we as the church have to do to let Satan completely rule our towns, our country, and our homes is to sit back and do nothing and say, oh, I don't want to be antagonistic. There's enough problem in the world. There's enough negativity without bringing sin into the church. No. We have got to stand. Stand for what's right. Do not tolerate evil, but know that the persecution is coming and tolerate it. Now the question is, Are you in a position to even understand evil? Are you in a position to, to understand what it is to, to live for Christ to begin with? Because it all comes back to the individual. The church can only be what the individuals are. Are you someone who's looking for that answer, who's, who's, who understands, you know what, I don't want to tolerate evil in my life anymore. I don't want to tolerate sin in my life. I have gone too long trusting in myself, living my own way, living my own path. No longer do I want to do that. Is that you? Is today the day that you finally understand, you know what, there is more to my life. There is more possibility than what I've done. I want to know that through Jesus Christ. Then we're waiting for the appropriate response. See, we're all sinners. Said it over and over. The letters were written to the saved, to the church. But the whole point, the whole concern of these letters, the whole concern of, of the Bible is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are a church that, that does not, or that tolerates evil, if we are a church that allows sin to take root in our congregation and in our personal lives. If we are a church that does not do the work we're called to do, the works, the toil, and those hard things that are going to lead to persecution, if we're not a church that's doing that, then we are not the gospel-sharing church that Christ has called us to be. And so the, excuse me, the letter is written, church, where are you? What are you doing? And how are you living? Because if your light, as we sang this morning, 
If your light is not shining, then you're not the church you need to be. So someone here is asking, is wondering, what do you mean? What is the light? What is, what's this? What's, what do you mean Jesus? What do you mean saved? We are all sinners. We all break God's law, break God's commandments. But Jesus is the way through that. How do, am I saved? I admit that I'm a savior. I'm, I'm not a savior. I admit that I'm a sinner, rather. That I have broken God's law. But you know what? Jesus has fixed that for me, has bridged the gap, has taken my punishment on the cross. I believe that Jesus is my only hope. I can't save myself. My good works can't save me. Church attendance cannot save me. Only Jesus Christ and his shed blood can save me. And then we confess, yes, Lord, I trust you. Yes, Lord, I believe you. The words don't save you. A prayer doesn't save you. The heart change, the belief, the acceptance of Jesus Christ, that's what saves you. So there's an appropriate response. Are you looking for a church that does this, that, that, that understands this? Are you, are you looking to, to learn and to grow? Come back. Be a part. Maybe you've been a Christian. Maybe, maybe you're one of those that I was talking about, that you lived a certain kind of life. You got saved, and boy, for a while, yeah, it all worked. But then, then slowly, gradually, things started chipping away. And now you're back. And you want to, you want to feel what you felt once more. Come talk to Jesus about it. We use phrases like recommit or return. Jesus never went anywhere. It's just a matter of you deciding, no longer am I going to live that life, but God, through your power, I want to live a Christ-like life. Maybe that's your decision today. Let's pray. Father, move on the hearts this morning. We, we pray that we are a church that gets an A-plus in appropriate tolerance. God, that we, we tolerate effort. More than that, we actually commit to it. God, that we do not tolerate evil from our leadership, from our people, or in ourselves. And God, that we would put up with the persecution. We would be bold regardless, bold in spite of the persecution. God, for those who all this sounds good, sounds great, but it's not quite clicking, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work on them, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would, they would question enough, wonder enough to come and talk to me about it or talk to someone that they are comfortable with here one of our deacons, Sunday school teacher. Lord, we ask for change, changed hearts. Lord, we ask for salvation of the lost because that's why we exist. So we pray for great things, God. Move in the hearts this morning as we worship you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what are you going to, what's your grade this morning? What, what, are you going to leave? 
and and oh it was a good sermon or it was a bad sermon or whatever I didn't like what he said he said some good things I'm confused I don't know I don't like it I'm never coming back or are you gonna are you gonna struggle with it are you gonna hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit and say God I don't understand I, I don't understand how I'm supposed to how can I be good enough you can't you can only be saved how can I ever, how can I ever by my own power get it figured out? You can't. You can only trust. So what's your decision this morning? Are you asking Jesus into your heart for the first time? Come forward and talk to me about it if you want to. Love to have you come up. We'll go and we'll talk after, after the service for a little while. Put it on the card, the connection card. Let me know of your decision. Do you want to join the church? Do you want to be baptized? You've, you've made some verbal commitments, but you've just never, you've never jumped in. Do that. Do you need to come up to the altar and pray? Recommit to Christ. Reconnect with Christ. Return to that, that time when, when your spiritual life was a joy and not a hardship. Now's your time to come as we sing. Let's stand. Uh, guys, we, folks, people, ladies and gentlemen, we have got to be a church whose, whose number one goal is to see the lost saved. And, and we've got to weigh ourselves against what the Bible says. And we're going to be spending some tough weeks uh, uh, looking at what Jesus said to the churches. And how do we stack up? Hopefully, there, some of y'all are going, man, I am not there yet. No A-plus for me today. Hopefully, some of you are saying, yeah, like B-minus. Uh, but uh, got some work. I doubt any of us are at the A-plus. But we need to be an A-plus church. We need to be a church that when Jesus looks at us and says, he says, I know your works, I know your labor, I know your endurance, and you are my kind of church. Let's be that church.